1: For this week's episode, we're going back to June 1986. On June 4th, 1986, 31-year-old Jonathan Pollard, an American civilian naval intelligence analyst, pleaded guilty to espionage. He had been caught selling secrets to Israel, an American ally. This was a major embarrassment for Israel because they were caught spying on an ally. Pollard made a plea deal and he pleaded guilty. He was given a life sentence. He is the only American to ever be convicted of selling state secrets to an ally. At the time, a life sentence meant an inmate could apply for parole after 30 years. So he was paroled in November 2015 after serving 30 years, including time served, before he was sentenced. In 2020, Pollard moved to Israel, where the Israeli Prime Minister personally greeted him. At the time of this recording, Pollard is 68 years old and resides in Israel. On June 8, 1968, Kurt Waldheim was elected Prime Minister of Austria. This was considered shocking because during his campaign, it was revealed that he may have been a Nazi interpreter and intelligence officer during World War II. He may have also been involved in brutal war crimes. Waldheim denied being involved in any atrocities, but he did say he wasn't fully candid about what he did in World War II. As Prime Minister, he was isolated on the international scene. He served one six-year term and chose not to run for a second term. An international team of historians ultimately cleared him of a wrongdoing during World War II. Waldheim died in June 2007. On June 11, 1986, the number one song in the United States was On My Own by Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald. The number one movie was Top Gun, which was released four weeks earlier. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: Shanae Kirby was born in December 1949 in Michigan. When she was seven, she was diagnosed with rheumatic heart disease. The disease nearly killed her, but she survived. However, she ended up missing an entire year of school and was left with a weak heart. As she grew up, Jeanette wanted to get into law enforcement. But because of her bad ticker, she couldn't. Nevertheless, she took courses in law enforcement in college. She hoped to get a desk job, like a dispatcher. Instead, she became a Medicare analyst. In the spring of 1986, 36-year-old Jeanette Kirby lived alone in a house in Lansing, Michigan. She was divorced and didn't have any children. Every morning, she went to her parents' house to have breakfast with her mother before going to work. On June 11th, she didn't show up for breakfast or go to work. Her family instantly became worried because this was very out of character for her. Jeanette's parents reported her missing that evening. Her family also started searching for her. But that night, they had to stop searching because there were terrible thunderstorms in the area. The next day, her family continued looking for her. Jeanette's aunt told the television program, Stolen Voices, Buried Secrets that Jeanette had recently started going to a park called River Bend Natural Area in nearby Hold, Michigan. They got a bad feeling when they pulled into the parking lot. Jeanette's car was parked there and there was a ticket on her windshield for parking overnight. So they called the police. The police plus friends and family began searching the park for her. The first day, they didn't find anything. The next morning, on the riverbanks in the park, a searcher found the dead body of 36-year-old Jeanette Kirby. Her clothes had been cut off and her hands were bound behind her back with a zip tie. But these were no usual zip ties. Instead, it was a zip cuff that police used to handcuff people. The difference between a zip cuff and a zip tie used by civilians is that zip cuffs have a metal tab in the plastic head while the ones civilians use have a plastic tab. The metal tab makes the flex cuffs much stronger. Flex cuffs are also much harder to get a hold of because they are police issued and you can't just purchase them at a place like a hardware store. So the police suspected that someone in law enforcement may have killed Jeanette. Her throat had been slashed. She had also been stabbed once in each lung and once in the heart. However, there were no signs that she had been sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, the rain had destroyed a lot of potential evidence. Nevertheless, the police searched the area around the body. The day after the body was found, they made a shocking discovery. The shocking discovery was the decomposing body of another woman. The body was floating in the river. It was the body of a woman in her 20s. Like Jeanette, she had been a short white woman with brown hair. Also, both victims had been stabbed. A week after the second body was discovered, the police identified her as 26-year-old Cynthia Ann Miller. Cynthia had lived with her parents in Mason, Michigan. On the night of November 25th, 1985, Cynthia left her parents' home and told them that she would be returning that night. When they didn't see or hear from her after a few days, they reported her missing. After her body was discovered, the police were sure that the same person had killed both women because there were too many similarities between the victims. The police first looked at Jeanette's ex-husband. But he was in a different state at the time of the murders, so he was cleared as a suspect. Jeanette had casually dated, but all the men she dated were cleared as suspects. So no arrests were made in the days after the discovery of the bodies. Then, about a month after the bodies were found, the police received a tip that two men, 35-year-old Earl Jack Fox and 24-year-old Robert Joseph Jones, killed Cynthia Ann Miller. There was an outstanding warrant for Jones, so they arrested him. Jones claimed he was only a witness to the murder. He said that he and Fox were driving when they came across Cynthia hitchhiking in the rain. They picked her up and brought her back to Fox's home. Cynthia got out her wet clothes and they were put in the dryer. Fox suggested that she have sex with both of them, and Cynthia supposedly said that would cost them money. Jones said that Fox tied Cynthia to a bed and then raped her. Afterward, he stabbed her and then dragged her body into the bathtub. He then submerged her body in the water. Afterward, he dragged her body into the basement and stuffed it into a cubby hole. The police talked to several friends and family members of Fox and Jones. One of them was Jones's mother who was in a sexual relationship with Fox. She told an odd story of visiting Fox's home and he gave her a tour. It ended with him showing her the body in the basement. Another friend of Fox said that he got the same tour. He also said he helped Fox throw the body in the river. He said he did it because Fox had threatened to kill him. Fox and Jones also talked about the murder to several other people. In these stories, Jones just wasn't a witness, but also a participant. Jones told people he had raped Cynthia and stabbed her. Then Fox strangled her to finish her off. Together, they dragged the body into the bathtub, then they took her down to the cubbyhole. Fox was arrested a few days after Jones was arrested. Both men said that they had nothing to do with Jeanette's murder. They said that the fact that their bodies were found within a few hundred yards of each other was merely a coincidence. However, the police didn't believe them. The police had sketches of people who were seen in the park around the time Jeanette was murdered. Earl Fox resembled one of the sketches. However, after an extensive investigation, the police were able to confirm their alibis and they were able to clear them as suspects in Jeanette's murder. Earl Fox went to trial in January 1987 for the murder of Cynthia Miller. He was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Robert Jones went to trial in February 1987. After five days of testimony and three hours of jury deliberation, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 60 to 90 years of prison. Unfortunately, Jeanne Kirby's case went cold. Four years later, the police thought they caught a break in the case. A man named David Dreheim was arrested for attempting to kidnap a woman in Leland, Michigan which is over two hundred miles away from where Jeanette was killed. Dreheim was a thirty-three year old worker at a wastewater management facility. He had served in the Marines and he was also a volunteer firefighter. A woman had been driving on a nicely country road when Dreheim pulled up behind her. He was driving a pickup truck with police style lights on the roof. He turned on the lights and she pulled over He got out of his truck and walked towards her car. He had a police hat on, but he didn't have the rest of the uniform. He ordered her to get out of the car and she obeyed. He then tried to get her into his vehicle, but she resisted. Dreheim had a gun and he fired it into the air. When another car drove by, Dreheim became spooked and fled. The police started looking for the vehicle, and the gas station attendant remembered it. He said the driver purchased gas with a credit card. He gave the credit card receipt to the police. It turned out that Dreheim had been vacationing close to Leland. But his home was just two miles away from where Jeanette had been murdered. He worked just a mile away from where she was killed. A search of Drayheim's truck was conducted. Inside it, they found a knife and zip ties. The police also noticed similarities between the attempted abduction and Jeanette's murder. The police thought that Jeanette's killer may have approached her under the pretense of being a police officer. Also, both women were approached while they were alone in an isolated area. But then, the police had a roadblock. The zip ties were from a different manufacturer than the one used on Jeanette. Also, the knife found in Draheim's truck was not the knife that was used to kill Jeanette. The knife in his truck was much larger. The police asked Draheim to take a polygraph exam and he agreed. He denied killing Jeanette and he passed. After David Dreyheim was arrested for the attempted kidnapping, another woman came forward with a horrifying story. She was a waitress and she said that one night as she was driving home, one of her tires became flat. She said that Dreheim stopped and offered to let her use his home phone. She agreed and they went to his house. Once there, Dreheim pulled out a gun and then raped her several times. He let her go, but he said he would kill her if she told anyone. David Draheim went to trial for that kidnapping and rape in October 1990. He was found guilty. A month later, he was sentenced to 40 to 80 years in prison. Another nine years went by. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy
1: the show. Then in 1999, Muriel Kirby, Jeanette's mother, had a meeting with Michigan's Attorney General. Muriel decided to take action after her husband and Jeanette's father died. She told Forensic Files that he became angry after his daughter's murder and he never let go of that anger. The Attorney General agreed to assign investigators to the case. In 1986, when Jeanette was killed, the top three TV shows were all comedies, The Cosby Show, Family Ties, and Cheers. In 1999, the same show that aired on three different nights of the week was the most watched show. That was the game show Who Wants to be a Millionaire, which aired on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. Then after that came ER and then Friends. The top three movies in 1986 were Top Gun, which was the number one movie when Jeanette was killed. That was Crocodile Dundee and The Karate Kid Part 2. The 1986 for the Best Picture at the Academy Awards went Out of Africa. 1999's Best Picture was awarded to Shakespeare in Love. The top three grossing movies in 1999 were Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, The Sixth Sense, and Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. 1996's biggest song was a star-studded single. It was That's What Friends Are For by the legendary Dionne Warwick and Friends. Those friends were also musical legends. Last Night, Alton John, and Stevie Wonder. The other two top songs were Say You, Say Me by the masterful Lionel Richie and I Miss You by the R&B group Climax. 1999's three top singles were all from women, Believe by Cher, No Scrubs by TLC, and Angel of Mine by Monica. When the police reopened the case in 1999, they realized they had a major problem. They had no physical evidence like footprints, fingerprints, or DNA. The police decided to examine the three main suspects, Earl Fox, Robert Jones, and David Draheim. It wasn't hard to find any of the men that were all still in prison serving their sentences for the crimes that brought them to the attention of the investigators in the first place. The police decided to reinvestigate them just to be sure. They were again able to confirm that Fox and Jones had airtight alibis. When the police went to talk to Dreheim about the murder, he refused to speak. So the police started talking to Dreheim's friends and family. This included an old roommate named Mark Greco. He told investigators that while he was living with Dreheim, he had purchased a former state police car. In the trunk, he found a package of police-issued flex cuffs. Greco took one of the flex cuffs and gave the package to Dreheim. The police asked Greco if he had the flex cuff after all this time. He said that he did. He brought it to the police station that night. The police compared it to the flex cuff used to bound Jeanette Kirby. They looked almost identical. The police thought it was strange that Greco had kept the flex side for 13 years. So the police questioned him regarding the murder of Jeanette. He denied being involved and he took a polygraph exam. He passed the exam. Turned out that Greco was a self-described pack rat and he rarely threw anything out. When he lived with Draheim, he was working as a security guard. He had put the flexcuff in the brim of his security guard's hat. This is common practice in law enforcement. He just never threw the hat out. Greco agreed to testify that he gave the rest of the flexcuffs to Draheim. But well, the police didn't think that two flexcuffs looking like would be enough to sway a jury. After all, the flexcuffs were used by police departments all over the United States. So they wanted to see if there was a way to connect the pair of flex cuffs scientifically. They went to the factory that manufactured them. The investigators learned that the metal tabs are cut with a blade. As they are cut, the blade wears down, creating distinctive marks on the end of each tab. A forensic expert with the state police compared the tab from the flex cuff used to bound Jeanette and the tab from the flex cuff that Mark Greco had. Under a microscope, he saw that both cuts were almost identical. The expert said he would not have been surprised if the two tabs had been cut consecutively. The police finally felt that they had enough evidence to charge Draheim. The police finally felt that they had enough evidence to charge Dreheim with Jeanette's murder. But the police wanted to ensure that Dreheim was convicted because they wouldn't get another shot. So they found women who would testify that Dreheim would forcibly put flex cuffs on them. Dreheim's wife also had an interesting bit of information. She said that he often went jogging with a fanny pack containing zip ties. In April 2001, 15 years after Jeanette's murder, 44-year-old David Dreheim was charged with the murder. He went to trial in June 2001. The trial lasted two weeks. Then the jury deliberated for 21 hours over three days. They returned with a verdict of not guilty of first-degree murder. But he was found guilty of second-degree murder. In July 2001, he was sentenced to 60 to 90 years of prison. 66-year-old David Drehive is currently serving a sentence at the Saginaw Correctional Facility in Freeland, Michigan. He'll be able to apply for parole in January 2050 when he's 93 years old. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.